Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey. Today I'm joined by two wonderful guests. Our first is a PhD historian with the Church History Library, Jenny Reeder. Welcome, Jenny. Hi. And we're also joined again today by Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Thank you both for being here with us. Today we're going to be talking about Chapter 34, Build Up a City. So this is a chapter that starts off with the saints. Uh, Joseph, as we talked about in our last episode, has been freed from jail. He's once again finally a free man, and he is making plans with the saints to build a new place of refuge in a place called Commerce, Illinois. Set the stage for us just a little bit. Uh, Jenny, what's, what's happening here? Where are the saints moving? Okay, I'm going to back up just a little bit. So when the saints left Missouri, they were in dreadful conditions. They had... They were sick and cold and had lost most of their possessions. And the kind citizens of Quincy had welcomed them into their city. And they stayed there for quite a while and finally realized that they needed to build their own city and have their own settlement. Right. And there was some discussion as to whether that should be one big settlement or it should be spread out again. Really they, some concern even. If, if we get together, we're just going to be in another mess. Right. So they found this land that seemed to be in a really great location. Commerce, Illinois, was on the Mississippi River. They had access, again, to the water transportation. Uh, There was a nice bluff, and Illinois seemed to be very welcoming to the Mormons. One of the problems, though, was that this particular area was in a very boggy, marshy place, and so there was a lot of mosquitoes and a lot of sickness. And so that is what happened, and that was sort of the their welcome into this area was malaria, sickness, and death. Let's listen to a little little section here from the book about the Nauvoo area, or what would become, rather, the Nauvoo area. Joseph believed the saints could build thriving stakes of Zion in this area. The land was not the choicest he had ever seen, but the Mississippi River was navigable all the way to the ocean, making commerce a good place for gathering the saints from abroad and establishing commercial enterprises. The area was also sparsely settled. Still, gathering the saints there would be risky. If the church grew as Joseph hoped it would, their neighbors might become alarmed and turn against them as people had in Missouri. Joseph prayed, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Build up a city, the Lord replied, and call my saints to this place. So, despite the conditions, the Lord's called them to build up a city in Nauvoo. What, what do they do? What do they, how does this develop? What do they do to, to get things going? Well, they purchased land. There was one person in particular, Isaac Galland, who was willing to, to sell them land. Daniel Wells was also one of those big landowners. And they started building a city. And I mean, I, they pretty much started from scratch. There wasn't much there. So in addition to the fact that it was marshy land, Um, and many, many, many people were sick, 
Joseph and Emma found that most of their time was spent initially in going around and blessing and helping encourage people to get better and to build the city. And also at the same time, Joseph was calling members of his apostles to go on the on missions. Let's listen to another little clip here about this sickness that the saints are experiencing on the banks of the Mississippi River in this, in this place called Commerce. Wilford walked with them across the village square to the home of his friend Elijah Fordham. Elijah's eyes were sunken and his skin ashen. His wife Anna was weeping as she prepared his burial clothes. Joseph approached Elijah and took his hand. Brother Fordham, he asked, have you not faith to be healed? I am afraid it is too late, he said. Do you not believe that Jesus is the Christ? I do, Brother Joseph. Elijah, the prophet declared, I command you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to arise and be made whole. The words seemed to shake the house. Elijah rose from his bed, his face flush with color. He dressed, asked for something to eat, and followed Joseph outside to help minister to many others. I think that's a fantastic example of somebody who's been healed, um, who then, of course, immediately rushes to heal other people. And, and that's, of course, applicable to us as, as we're physically healed, but also, I think, spiritually healed as we find truth. That as we feel that healing, we can then turn around and, and rush to heal others and that there's joy in that. So was everyone healed, Jenny? No, not everyone was healed. And I think that's an important thing, again, to recognize that things don't end up the way we always want them to. Not everybody is healed physically from their sickness. I love that Emma went out with Joseph and ministered to the people. But people did die. People did pass away. Zina Huntington's mother passed away, and that was tragic for her. Many babies passed away, and others passed away as well. That reminds me of another part of the story here, this experience with Zina and her mother. We learned some doctrine that's pretty new, pretty earth-shattering. Let's listen to a little quote um, from the book, and then let's talk a little bit about what we learn in this experience. When her mother died, Zina was overcome with grief. Knowing the family's suffering, Joseph continued to attend to them. During one of Joseph's visits, Zina asked him, Will I know my mother as my mother when I get over on the other side? More than that, he said, you will meet and become acquainted with your eternal mother, the wife of your father in heaven. Have I then a mother in heaven? Zina asked. You assuredly have, said Joseph. How could a father claim his title unless there were also a mother to share that parenthood? Jenny, is this a new idea? This is a new idea, and it's such an exciting one. I can hardly sit still when I listen to this. And I think it's interesting, too, that with their trials and their tribulations, they're very difficult. But just like in the Liberty Jail, Joseph receives revelation that matches the depravity of their challenges. And this revelation is indeed glorious. It's amazing. And Joseph was such a proponent of women and recognizing women's places. He cared about Zina and her mother, Zina. They were both named Zina. <laughs> but he cared about these women, and he cared about this need to recognize this human family and this godly family. It was surprising to me. I didn't realize that this experience had been recorded elsewhere. I, the, the first place I knew of this was in the hymn that we're familiar with. How does the refrain go? It makes reason stare. I have a mother there. 
Right. And Eliza Arsenault wrote that hymn actually after the death of her own father. So, and I, she was very close with Zina, and I'm sure Zina probably shared the information that, that Joseph Smith had given to her. And knowing Eliza, she would have gone straight to Joseph to ask him for more information. And so she, Eliza Arsenault has sort of become the deliverer. She explains this beautiful concept that is so unique and distinct to Mormon theology of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. In that vein, doesn't he also learn that families continue on forever after this life? Yes, it's like this perfect timing, right? I mean, it all falls into place in such beautiful ways and over time. It's during this loss, great loss with cholera and malaria, that he receives this knowledge that families can be together forever. We see some great correspondence between Valet Kimball and her husband, Heber C. Kimball, as Heber has gone on his mission and Valet talks about how Joseph has developed this concept even more. And it's such a sweet, beautiful doctrine that they are able to share despite being separated, despite getting sick and living in really difficult situations. Let me just set the scene for this little clip we're going to listen to. We have Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball essentially sick, one of them lying in the back of the wagon, driving away. Their families are also not well, and it's really pretty miserable. So let's hear the clip from the book. This is pretty tough, he said to Brigham. Let's rise up and give them a cheer. Back at the house, a noise from outside startled Valade out of bed. Staggering to the door, she joined Marianne and Fanny, who were looking at something a short distance away. Valate looked, too, and a smile spread across her face. It was Brigham and Heber, standing in the back of the wagon and leaning on each other for support. Hurrah! Hurrah! the men cried, waving their hats in the air. Hurrah for Israel! Goodbye, the women called out. God bless you. Jenny, what do you think about this? I think it's remarkable in several ways. I think it's remarkable that these women were able to let their husbands go. In fact, they were encouraging them to go, recognizing that they would be at home with these sick babies, being feeling sick themselves. But they also knew that they would be looked after, that other saints would help them. And I also love the fact that Heber and Brigham decided, let's give them one last little cheer, um, because they didn't think that they could do that. I, I think this this uh, this support and this idea that they are sharing these difficult times together is remarkable. It's really a beautiful moment, and I think I want to do that. I want to when I'm at my lowest point, I want to drag myself up and wave my hat and say hurrah, you know, because they certainly weren't feeling it as far as physically, but the act showed great faith, and I I, I love that part of the story. So, Jenny, there are missionaries that are in England at this point of the story. Is that right? What are they up to? How are things going for them? Things are going relatively well for them. We have Wilford Woodruff, Willard Richards, Joseph Fielding, who will soon be met by Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. In England, I think this is interesting because this would never happen on a mission today, um, both Willard Richards and Joseph Fielding get married. <laughs> to to British sisters. And exciting things are happening. The church is really growing at a steady rate. We have the saints growing at a, a steady number in Staffordshire. And then Wilford Woodruff all of a sudden feels called to go 
away to go outside of the city. And he and a man, a British saint named William Benbow, go to visit William's brother, John, and his wife, Jane. And here at the Benbow Farm, these people are, are set up very well. They're on a beautiful 300-acre farm, and they're doing well economically, but they've also been questioning religion and religion in England in general. They and, and a few hundred of their friends and neighbors have created this new congregation called the United Brethren. So when Wilford Woodruff comes and starts teaching this congregation, they are so excited and they love the idea of the Book of Mormon. And so many of them want to get baptized that Wilford has to call back for his companions to, to join him to baptize all the people. Oh, wow. It's one of those moments you read about in church history, and then as a missionary, you say, where's, where's my Jane and John Bembo? <laughs> you know, like, I want, <laughs> I want to stumble across this congregation of seekers that are waiting for the truth. But that's really what they were. They were just, just waiting for, for Wilford and his companions to, to come to them. And those members, John and Jane Bembo, remained so strong through Nauvoo. They came to, obviously, they came to the United States and they came to Illinois and were very strong members in Nauvoo all the way across to Salt Lake. It's an amazing part of the story. Let's, um, let's listen to a little clip here about this experience with the United Brethren. As John and Jane listened to Wilfred that evening, they believed they had finally found the fullness of the gospel. The next day, Wilfred preached a sermon in the Benbow's home to a large group of neighbors, and he soon baptized John and Jane in a nearby pond. In the coming weeks, Wilfred baptized more than 150 members of the United Brethren, including 46 lay ministers. I think it's also remarkable that the people that were joining the church were prepared. They were lay ministers. There's, what did we listen there? 46 they were well-versed in the scriptures. They knew how to deliver a message. And I'll bet they were pretty good at it. I think they must have been pretty good at it. And this is something, a concept that I think we may not understand today as well. But these people, both in Great Britain and in America, were very well-versed in the Bible. They were a people of the Bible. And they knew the Bible, probably much better than we know it today. So they were waiting for this. They knew the promises. They knew the way that the church had been organized by Jesus Christ and his apostles. And they knew that that church could and would be restored on the earth. Another little miraculous part of the story, if we flash forward to our day, is one of the chapels, in fact, where they met, is still around. It's called the Gadfield Elm Chapel. Um, and through a really a set of remarkable experiences, which our, our listeners could go look up on history.lds.org. The church now owns that property again, and it is actually the oldest standing chapel in the church. In the whole world. In the world. That's amazing. Uh, it's not in Missouri. It's not in Ohio. It's not in New York. It's in Gadfield Elm, England. So I know that Joseph and Sidney Rigdon take a trip to Washington, D.C., but things don't totally go as planned or even just as hoped. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Jenny? Sure. The main purpose of their trip to Washington, D.C. was to seek redress or to seek uh, money or financial contributions to make up for what the saints had lost in Missouri. And so Joseph was traveling with his friends and legal advice, uh, friend Sidney Rigdon, 
who was an amazing uh, speaker. He had some great skills as a, a preacher and um, a speaker. And he, jo- he got sick along the way. So Joseph ends up meeting some of his other advisors in Washington, D.C., uh, Elias Higby, who is his friend and legal advisor, and, and John Reynolds, who was a congressman from Illinois. So they went in to visit with President Martin Van Buren at the White House. And Joseph, I think, was a little nervous. He hadn't expected to do all the talking. And the congressman, John Reynolds, sort of just left him and introduced him as a Latter-day Saint and just left him to talk. And so Joseph told, told the president what was going on and was shot down. I think it was considered a political move by the president because he was concerned about elect, upcoming elections and how the people in Illinois or Missouri would vote. And so he wasn't willing to really listen to the, to the needs of this group of people. I think that's interesting because, of course, you would hope that as the prophet of God, you you know could be successful in all of your endeavors to hopefully bring about his work and, and do his will. But, of course, there were stumbling blocks like this. But I don't know if, how you feel about it. I wonder if maybe these sort of stumbling blocks allowed for humility that then allowed for, for the revelation or, or more guidance in Joseph's life. I think you're right. And I think it's interesting that then after being rejected— by political leaders, Joseph then, I think, recognizes, and again, this is a shift that I think happens over time, he recognizes that they aren't going to receive assistance from federal legislation or state or local legislation, that they are going to have to turn to God. And as a result, he goes and gives this sermon and expresses this humble need for God and a humble belief in him and in the restoration of the church. That was really amazing. I've heard our friend uh, Spencer McBride um, with the Joseph Smith Papers talk about this experience. You know, we we might picture in our minds this this very formal, very you know, giant occasion, and and really, it's almost like a, a line at the DMV. Like people are just lined up to meet the president. He he lets them in. They get their five minutes, and so for President Van Buren, it's inconsequential. You know, he, he's just one of many petitioners. But as you said, Jenny, to Joseph, this is a hinge point. We are now, like this moment, the government's not going to help us. We have to turn to God. And I, and I think that, to me, is one of the greatest takeaways of this mission to Washington, D.C., is the saints recognize they're not going to get the payback from Missouri, and they just have to move on. Yes, I agree. I think this is a time, too, when the saints realize that they have to take charge of what they need and they have to build up what they can and they may have to move on again but this is all part of their living in a mortal imperfect world with people that will take advantage of them or that see things in a different political or religious or social perspective they realize that they know who they are and what they believe and that they're consistent in that knowledge of of being a part of the restored gospel, separate from those other people and political parties and neighbors and cities in Missouri and Illinois. And during this trip, which ultimately was not successful, Joseph preached a sermon, and a reporter came and listened to that sermon, and and this is what he uh, recorded of that experience. 
Reflecting on the sermon, Matthew realized that he had heard nothing that evening that would harm society. There was much in his precepts if they were followed, Matthew told his wife the next day in a letter, that would soften the asperities of man towards man and that would tend to make him a more rational being. Matthew had no intention of accepting the prophet's teachings, but he appreciated his message of peace. There was no violence, no fury, no denunciation, he wrote. His religion appears to be the religion of meekness, lowliness, and mild persuasion. I have changed my opinion of the Mormons, he concluded. What does that tell us, Jenny, about what a non-member, a, a, a person outside of Joseph's circle was thinking about this experience of meeting the prophet? I actually think this tells us two things. One thing it tells us is there's a perception that Mormons are rambunctious and wild and violent. And so he goes and hears, actually hears Joseph speak and realizes that is not what Mormons are about, that Mormons have a strong sense of peace and of love and of God, and that they are meek in their requests for people to listen to them and to accept or reject their message. But I think he overall is really impressed with the fact that this this is not a vigilante, wild, crazy group of people, but rather a quiet people of God. I think it's interesting that Joseph Smith actually traveled to meet with the president and with members of Congress, and that he, of course, is preaching a gospel of meekness and love, but that doesn't exclude him from, from also having strength and also knowing how to communicate. And I think it's such a wonderful combination of, of powers, and that is that meekness and love and, and that courage to declare his faith. And I don't think that he could have completed his mission in restoring the gospel without those qualities. I think it's interesting, too, that Joseph actually, the purpose of him going to Washington, D.C. was to seek assistance and help for everything that the saints had lost in Missouri, for the way that the Missourians had treated them and stolen their property and caused so much damage, both physically and emotionally. So that's his purpose in going, and that's why he's trying to stand up and speak to the President of the United States and to deliver messages to members of Congress. Um, but also he has this part of him that recognizes the need to truly and humbly explain what they believe at the same time. I love, too, that no matter where he is, he is a missionary. That's just an incredible hallmark of his life. I also appreciate the statement by Matthew Davis. I think of, of all the things, of all the compliments that could have been paid for him to say that it was a religion of meekness, lowliness, and of mild persuasion, to me, that sounds like what I think of when I think of what was Christ like? And I think, way to go, Matthew Davis. Thank you for, for capturing that moment for us. Even though he wasn't a believer, he described him how I would hope that those who look in on us as members of the church might be described. Thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Jenny Reeder, thank you for being here. Uh, Sarah Eyring, thank you for joining us also. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We appreciate it. In our next episode, we'll be talking more about what comes up next in Saints. We invite you to listen in. You can always find out more by visiting saints.lds.org, where you can explore the latest updates, topics, and videos. You can listen to Saints 
in the church history section of the Gospel Library. And you can also download this podcast and many others at mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. Thank you.